Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. Karen and I have been trialing their designs for a few months and we can happily recommend them. All designs are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Runner's gut is a blight on the performance of many runners. In today's episode, we will be looking at what may be triggering your symptoms. We'll help with food and lifestyle ideas so you can stop worrying about digestion and focus on your running. Hello and welcome to She Runs, Eats, Performs, the podcast for female runners of all abilities. Please join Karen Campbell and Aileen Smith, nutritionist friends and runners, who are here to help you translate sports nutritional science into easy to apply tips and plans, helping you enjoy peak running performance. And especially adding in the female factors every woman needs to know to be a healthy runner. The suggestions we make during this episode are for a guidance and advice only, and are not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. If you have any concerns regarding your health, please contact your healthcare professional for advice as soon as possible. If you'd like help from Karen and Ailey to design a personalised sports nutrition plan for your running, please contact them at Runners Health Hub. Everyone, welcome back. I'm Aileen and I'm here with Karen. And as always, before we start on today's topic, we thought we'd share something personal about nutrition or running. So um, today's topic is all about digestion. So Karen, um, first of all, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, looking forward to um, uh, another chat on another topic with you, Aileen. Okay, brilliant. So, so my question today, Karen, to get us started is, have you ever experienced any digestive issues either during training or in a race? Um, well, actually, thankfully, during an event as such, no, I've never exp- experienced anything dramatic at all, actually. Maybe um, on occasion, I'll have some wind or stomach cramps, but that tends to sort of um, dissipate quite quickly once I'm into the run. So so thankfully, no. But in training, I have to say I've been um, caught out a couple of times um, where I've had to dash for a tree and find a big tree that I can hide behind. But on saying that, again, it's very rare because I do sort of think about what I'm eating and what I'm drinking that day before I I know I've got a long training run. So, um, so thankfully, I haven't had that imposition and potential embarrassment of having to go to the the loo outdoors sailing but how about you have you ever had a Paula Radcliffe moment um yeah fortunately not I'm I'm pretty lucky in that respect Uh, my digestive system is quite robust on a day-to-day basis and that tends to follow uh, during my training or if I'm in races and I I think that's uh, often the case you know if you've got any digestive disturbance on a day-to-day basis it it can be exacerbated by your running um Mm. my problem uh which is uh something i've shared many times before is that i do tend to suffer from nausea and sometimes vomiting um after an endurance race uh, which is really unpleasant uh not every time thankfully but just on certain uh, certain occasions uh, and it's also some always something I'm trying to minimize because it is so horrible and it really spoils the enjoyment of, of finishing a race. Um, but we covered quite a lot about that in episode three. Um, mm. So we, we talked about those upper respiratory types of feeling sick, you know, the higher up in your digestive system. Um, but today, uh, really what we're going to be focusing on um, is runner's gut and how nutrition can help. So sometimes um, described as runner's tummy um, or GI distress. So, um, you know, that gastrointestinal distress. Uh, there's so many different names for it. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we're talking about the digestion and how it can be um, 
disruptive and distressing as a runner. Um, and as I said earlier, episode three, we, we covered this in, um, quite a lot of detail, but we really focused on the physical, mechanical and nutritional risk factors for digestive issues in runners. So in this episode, what we'd like to, um, talk about is just recapping on what we, we mentioned in episode three. And then looking at um, distinguishing the difference between um, two pretty well-known um, digestive um, disorders, one of them being IBS, so that's uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and the other being IBD, which is irritable bowel disease. And we're going to distinguish the difference between the two and review the symptoms. And then finally, uh, we'll have a look at the nutritional and lifestyle changes uh, that you could make that would help to limit or avoid uh, digestive symptoms as a runner. So, um, so there's quite a lot to get through today. Uh, so Karen, um, mm. as I, I said earlier, we've looked at the physical, mechanical and nutritional risk factors for digestive issues in runners. So could you help us out just by having a recap on each of those areas, um, starting with the physical effects of running and, and maybe a summary of why this is a risk factor? Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. So, so the, like we said in episode three, the physical effects of running um, as a potential cause of this runner's gut or GI distress is principally linked to the reduced blood flow to the, to the GI tract. So the, that gastrointestinal tract, especially in long distance running. And this is where most of the effects do tend to occur is on people who do marathons and beyond. Um, and, the digestive system is very important to overall health. However, when the body is under stress from running, the blood flow is potentially, is preferentially diverted to the working muscle and heart. Um, after all, you know, as we know that the muscle is a big heart. So although the digestive system is important, it's not as important. Um, as the heart when we are sort of running these really long distances. So in, a, in its thought that the blood flow to the intestines can be reduced by up to 80% and, um, and can lead to some symptoms, including the likes of the cramping, the nausea that you were speaking about, Aileen, um, and also bloating. But in more severe cases, you can get what's called ischemic colitis. Now that sort of injury and inflammation that occurs um, to the large intestine, but that is is, you know, that is in more severe cases. So that's sort of the, the physical effect of, um, of running. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really, yeah, that's a really good recap, Karen, to just remember about the diversion of blood flow, um, which is quite obvious, really, but maybe something mm. we don't always remember to think about. Um, but one of the other points I remember that we discussed was anxiety being a potential risk factor for GI distress. Um, and as we know that anxiety or sometimes it's excitement that uh, tends to be high, especially before a race event. And that anxiety is thought to affect hormone secretion, which may in turn affect the intestinal mobility um, so as I said, you know, it could be a combination of ex excitement and, and anxiety. The two things might go together. And I think that might be my issue. And I think that's why I get it on certain races mm. and not others. And I think the bigger the race, as in the number of people that are there, there's just a very high energy. And I think that just affects me. So I've noticed when I do the little local runs, whether they be just a few hundreds, I can not have any problem there. But if I go somewhere like Newcastle or Edinburgh, where there's tens of thousands, it's, it just seems to have a yes. difference. Um, so, so yeah, it's an interesting observation. Um, so thinking, um, moving on from that, Karen, thinking about the mechanical effects of running and GI distress. Um, you, you mentioned in episode three that this was linked to the bouncing effect of running. Can you refresh our memories on that? Yeah, sure, really. So, um, it's, yeah, this bouncing effect is thought to be because of the repetitive high impact mechanics of running. So as you can imagine, as you're running along, you've got that sort of bouncing effect up and down, and that's thought to damage the intestinal wall. 
um, which in turn could lead to some um, GI bleeding. Um, it, not always bleeding, but it will certainly um, lead to irritation. And again, we're looking at the long distances over a long period of time could lead to this to this damage, um, and it can lead to some lower. Um, digestive GI symptoms um, that uh, that people experience as a result of this damage or irritation to the wall, including the likes of the flatulence, the diarrhea, and this urgency to go. So having to find that big tree very quickly. Um, but everybody is different. Um, so some runners may have different symptoms. You know, these are just some of the key ones I've mentioned here. But there are a myriad of different symptoms, and different people will will experience it um in 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 different ways okay so you've, you've mentioned some of the major symptoms karen are there any other symptoms other than the ones that you've mentioned that maybe you've had experience of um, not during running, but um, on on occasion, I have experienced uh, constipation, say for a couple of days afterwards, and and I do think this is principally as a result of maybe my nutrition and my hydration, because like I was saying, I do think about my diet before I go out for my long runs, especially that day before. So I do try and not eat too much fiber, because as we know, fiber can be it's really good for us, but it can be irritating to the digestive system. So I do tend to reduce that leading up to the to the long run or my race. And and also thinking about hydration. Now I do consider my hydration um before um a, a, a race or a long training run um, and also during it and after it. But I do think sometimes it's just not enough and uh, and especially if the weather is hot so I can kind of experience some constipation um, after after an event mm. or, or or training. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, again, that's an interesting insight that it's not just sort of GI distress during a race or a, a training run. It's if if it's what the after effects might be if you've changed your routine mm. with regards to food mm -hmm. and hydration, and and that can happen when you go traveling and you know all sorts of different lifestyle type events not just running so i think the digestive system is one that really likes routine and regularity isn't it so um, it is and, and absolutely and you saying about traveling aileen quite often people have to travel for the races as well so again that mm. could potentially could be another trigger for the constipation or or other gi symptoms especially if you're having to fly which is a dehydrating environment anyway so that is a really good point to raise mm, good so so thinking about um you know the the other area that we wanted to recap on, which was looking at nutrition and hydration. Um, and mm. you, you've talked about that just there, Karen. But uh, there are some other things that can be triggers, I suppose, regarding um, our digestion and uh, whether it's sort of working properly or not. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, spicy foods, you know, the day before a big race, uh, maybe thinking about alcohol or too much coffee because um, the, these are foods and, and beverages that are well known for causing sort of that digestive irritation, uh, maybe nausea, triggering urgency to go. So there are, there are a, few, a few effects. Um, are there mm. any other foods that we talked about during that episode three, Karen, that would be useful to remember? Yeah, actually, we did. We all we discussed um, carbohydrates and the potential carbohydrate effects, especially looking at um, the sports drinks and gels, and 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 we mentioned that sort of studies have found that these gels and drinks that have maybe more than 12 grams of carbohydrates per 100 grams of fluid or gel um is known to um to cause these these gi symptoms but we did also sort of stress that that it's worth remembering that most of these sports drinks are about 6 grams per 100 mils rather than the 12 so um so not to get too worried mm. about them but just to be just to be careful about about your intake 
Yeah, I mean, again, that's a very interesting sort of insight because it's maybe a connection that people haven't made um, because, you know, a lot of people do use gels during races and maybe if they're not used to using gels, um, that can be the thing that upsets everything mm. uh, during a race. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, I often observe people that are, you know, they're carrying handfuls of gels at the beginning of a race. You think, how on earth are you going to get through all of those? So if they're having several gels um, during a race or maybe having two gels together, that could potentially give them a really high load of carbohydrate, which could then trigger the symptoms that we've talked about. So it's really important just to um, focus on using gels strategically um, and spacing them out um, in the correct way so that the symptoms aren't triggered. Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. So like you've just suggested, you know, just try and um, not have two gels together, space them out. So if you're trying to get sort of um, quite a lot of of, of um, carbohydrates in within the hour, maybe thinking about having one every half an hour or every 20 minutes, it depends how much you need within that hour, rather than just introducing two or three in one hour and also to because a lot especially if it's gels it's really concentrated to be thinking about taking fluids on as at the same time to try and dilute um the 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 consistency of it um you'll still be absorbing the same amount but it'll just dilute it slightly more by by taking on the um the the fluids so, um, and just sort of carrying on from that, Aileen, thinking about the carbohydrate um, side of it, some people may have mild lactose intolerance, and that's fairly common, actually. Now, many people will probably know that lactose is that sugar um natural sugar found in milk and it's and, and because it is um fairly common to have a sensitivity or an intolerance then that could um result in this increased bowel activity and potentially mild diarrhea in in susceptible people um during running um or after running as well so that's something else to think about and also like i said at the beginning about the fiber content fiber is really good for us um, and very supportive of the digestive tract in so many ways. But sort of thinking about it linked to to running um, then maybe sort of avoiding it leading up to the to the run the day before, but definitely on on the morning before you run is what I would suggest there. Great. That's a fantastic recap, Karen. And I'm sure everyone else found that really helpful because it is sort of probably about three months since we did the um, episode three. So mm. it's just nice to bring it top of mind again. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on now and we're going to look at the difference between IBS and IBD and reviewing the symptoms. So just to, um, just to give a quick overview, as I said earlier, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. And that's really an umbrella term for a cluster of symptoms that are linked to the functional disorder of the digestive system. And it's, it's, a, it's a term used in the medical world, although a lot of people sometimes say, I've got IBS and they maybe don't have IBS um, because the, in the medical world, it would be something that um, would be, uh, I suppose, diagnosed due to the number of symptoms that you're experiencing and that there's a sort of criteria that uh, the medics would um, measure your symptoms against to say whether you had IBS or not. Um, and so a, a sort of a, a definition might be that it's a chronic gastrointestinal disorder in the absence of any structural, physiological or biochemical abnormalities, which in a, in a way is then saying we can't find out what's going on. Um, so it's, you've, you've got this syndrome, um, and we're not quite sure why it's happening. Um, and then IBD, which is the irritable bowel disease is a cluster of autoimmune conditions, which affect the digestive system, uh, which tend to be driven by inflammation. So things like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, would be the names that maybe people have heard of. Um, and also celiac disease is also an autoimmune condition affecting the digestive system too. 
So um, that's the sort of the, the way you would distinguish between the two uh, conditions. So, so if Karen, just thinking about that, how would people, you know, you know, know how they had one of these conditions? Yeah, well, generally, especially with the intestinal bowel disorder, um, there would be different tests being carried out um, by the medical profession. I'm thinking here things like um, colonoscopies, endoscopies, um, as well as sort of some laboratory tests, sort of thinking about blood tests um, to look at inflammation and other markers, which would um, would diagnose. IBD. Regarding IBS, probably your doctor would diagnose, diagnose that based more on symptoms rather than a test. So, and, and it's worth remembering that this, like I said earlier, the symptoms will, experience will vary between individuals and the underlying cause as well can be difficult to determine. So hence, like you just said, Aileen, hence why, um, it's, it is given the name syndrome because they, you know, there is intent, they can't find anything wrong through the various testings, but you're still experiencing these symptoms. So they class it as, as a syndrome and, and everybody experiences it differently. But thinking about common symptoms that people that certainly I find in clinic and probably you do as well, Aileen, is, is things like abdominal pain and discomfort, constipation, diarrhea, or um, potentially both uh, bloating and flatulence. Mm. So they would be the, the, the key symptoms that people would present to um in clinic um and and runners tend to tell us about this urgency to go when on a run and that again we were speaking earlier about it being diarrhea or constipation um and the constipation because it's this sudden need to stop for the toilet or they'll be worrying about when when to start their training in the morning because they haven't been to the toilet so they haven't had a bowel movement so it's it's about this urgency to go when it happens but it could be due to constipation rather than than um diarrhea if that makes sense Aileen. yeah yeah i think you've you've described that pretty well um i think when people are you know experiencing these kind of symptoms it's just really disruptive and you you never know what's going to happen and that causes a lot of anxiety mm. and embarrassment and people really don't want it to happen because when you're a runner you want to stick to a schedule and you don't want to have that um that going on mm. so yeah it's it's quite a, a, a difficult situation for people um so let's now delve into some of the health conditions we mentioned karen and if we could start with celiac disease um so we've already said that it's an inflammatory condition of the small intestine and it's triggered by a protein, uh, gliadin, which is found in grains, including wheat, barley and rye. And um, the key symptoms uh, include um, stomach pain, bloating, um, diarrhea, fatigue, uh, often accompanied by weight loss. You know, sometimes it can be quite sudden weight loss and the thing to really um, understand about this disease is that it irritates and damages the intestinal wall. So, um, and that means that you're not absorbing nutrients correctly, um, but potentially the damage to the intestinal wall could, could be exacerbated um, by the running effect that we talked about earlier, this bouncing effect of running, and that can irritate the intestinal lining as well. So if you, if your intestinal lining's already damaged and then you're doing a lot of running you could be um, making that damage um, sort of more intense um, so Karen what advice would you give on investigating um, celiac disease well I, first of all I would really urge anyone who's experiencing any of these severe digestive symptoms and losing weight like you were speaking about Aileen to visit their GP and have a celiac test you know it's a it's a really easy blood test um, and that looks at certain antibodies including I suppose the most common one that people might have heard is this transglutamate transglutamate 
oh gosh, I can't say it, transglutaminase, that's the way to say it, um, immunoglobulin. Now, I can't even say it. Some people may have heard of it and some people might not, um, as well as sort of looking at that total serum uh, immunoglobulin um, antibody. So, um, if it's negative, which hopefully it is, then at least it's something that's that you can rule out and sort of look at, okay, so it's not celiac disease. What else could it potentially be? If it is a positive um, test result, then it does mean a lifetime diet of omitting gluten. So those foods you were speaking about, alien, the, 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 the barley, the rye, the wheat, and, and, it, and it's found in so many different foods. So it does change um, eating habits quite significantly. But it is remarkable how quickly the digestive system recovers once that gluten has been removed and how the symptoms do alleviate. So I, I would really urge anybody who's, who's experiencing these severe symptoms to just go and have that test done. Now, if celiac disease is, isn't present, then it may be that it's a, a gluten intolerance or maybe a lactose intolerance. Now, both of these have been known to occur following different sort of digestive um, illnesses that people might have. Thinking about things like gastroenteritis, um, maybe um, Giardia, which is fairly common, um, a Giardia infection, which is... Um, it's, it's often known as giardiasis and, and it's caused by, um, an intestinal parasite. So somebody may have had that from after foreign travel, had that treated, but left with this, um, sensitivity to certain foods and gluten and lactose intolerance tends to be quite common ones. Um, or it could be a, as a result of this inflammatory bowel disease that we've been speaking about, ailing the Crohn's disease and the ulcerative colitis. Um, so, uh, like I was saying earlier, this lactose is, is the sugar naturally found in milk. And lactose intolerance can also be found in people with celiac disease, again, due to that damage to their gut lining that you were speaking about, Aileen. So somebody might have may, may um, have to emit gluten, but also might have to um, emit um, uh, um lactose as well for a period of time until that gut lining starts to heal again. So so that would be what I would suggest people do and um um to, to try and relieve some of these symptoms is take action. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you know you highlighted lactose there because and not just in relation to um irritable bowel disease, but just generally with digestive complaints, digestive symptoms, um, often an overconsumption of foods containing gluten and lactose may lead to these digestive symptoms. Mm. Um, so one of the positive, it, it sort of like can create almost like a food intolerance. And um, a lot of people do sort of jump on the food intolerance um reason for you know having particular symptoms um and, and often removing um a food that you either suspect you're intolerant to or maybe you've had a test um, done on uh, can help you know because if you remove a food uh, for a period of time that um you know just removes the trigger and it can mm -hmm. give your um lining an opportunity to heal um, and then the food can be reintroduced after a period of time um, what I often find is um, I don't know if it's the same for you Karen but many people will remove a food that they believe that they're intolerant to and it can alleviate the symptoms um, but they don't really do anything to help improve the gut healing process mm -hmm. and then if they ever have that food again, it just sort of triggers the whole cascade of symptoms again. So they, they almost like think it's the food that's the problem, but actually it can often be it's the gut lining that needs, um, you know, supporting and healing and strengthening so that it can tolerate the food. Um, and the other thing that can happen with, with that is that sometimes you can remove a food and the symptoms sort of dampen down but then you start having reactions to other foods 
And that's another sign that it's actually the structural part of the digestive system that needs attention um, because the danger is that you could end up removing so many foods that you're on a restrictive diet. So that's um, something important. So if, if you are going to um, do the sort of eliminate a food and then testing about adding it back in, it's important to introduce the food slowly and just observe your symptoms. So it might be that you can tolerate a small amount. Um, and it's, so it's really important to just work out what your tolerance levels are um, before you, you sort of revert back to your previous um, food plan. Um, so that's just a little bit of an insight there into um, food intolerances. Mm. So um, moving on, Karen, you, mm -hmm. you mentioned um, inflammatory bowel disease earlier and, and we we mentioned Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So can you tell us a bit more about um, these conditions and the impact on, on a runner? Yeah, absolutely. So the prevalence of um, this inflammatory bowel disease in runners, um, or, or all athletes actually, is, is currently unknown. Um, the, the, the only re relevance um, to athletes in general is the age distribution of these, um, these inflammatory bowel diseases because they're generally diagnosed between the ages of um, 15 and 35 years. So really that is the time when most athletes are at their peak. They're either beginning if they're at the, uh, the younger age group of that 15, 16, so still in their teens, they're sort of starting out. Um, um, and then sort of the others are, are at the height of their career. So that's the only sort of um, relevance that the studies have shown um, regarding um, athletes in general. Most of the studies on this is done on the general, on the general public. And, well, it's not unfortunately, but, you know, we've got limited information regarding yeah. athletes. Mm, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting, particularly thinking about younger runners uh, and how debilitating it, it might be for them if mm. they did have one of those uh, diseases. Um, and I think it's important, as you said to say earlier, Karen, that, you know, it, it, there's a, a sort of a low prevalence of these conditions uh, in the general public, thankfully. Um, so for Crohn's, um, there's something between two and four per 100,000 individuals uh, have Crohn's. And for ulcerative colitis, it's five to eight per 100,000. So it's still a lot, but it's not as, you know, I think it's something that people should be grateful that they haven't got. Um, but, you know, thankfully, there's not too many people have these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. That's right, Aileen. But, but I would still sort of urge anybody experiencing the symptoms, including that ongoing or chronic um, diarrhea and constipation or if they're seeing any mucus or blood in their stools or, or losing um, weight quickly like you were speaking about earlier then to just visit their GP and have it checked out. It's better to go there and find out that it's not an issue than to let it drag on. Um, you know, it, like like we spoke about earlier, it could just be that it's a result of the mechanics of running or the bouncing effect of, of the running, but can't stress it enough. Get it checked out first, and then you can rule that condition out. Yeah, and then, you know, we, you, you can do things like adapt your training and adapt how you, how you uh, live your life so that you can still run, but you're not exacerbating the symptoms. Mm. Um, and and obviously, you know, take professional advice um, if you need to. So, so thinking about IBS, Karen, I mean, I've had a lot of clients who've been either given a diagnosis of IBS from their GP or some that just suspect they've got IBS. Um, so I thought it might be helpful if I just um, outlined what my approach would be. Um, mm. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, what I would tend to do would be, uh, it's really important to just know the big picture. So have a detailed health history. And, and I really like creating a timeline of um, a client's digestive health as well as other um, sort of health things that might be going on with them. So in particular, it's like, when did the symptoms occur? Have there been any triggers like illness or travel-related infections, maybe things like food poisoning, 
Is there any stress, either old stress or new stress triggers? Um, what foods do they eat now? What have they eaten in the past? Are they on any medication? Um, just really getting a, a full overview. Uh, and most of all, it's finding out how the digestion is affecting their life. As we said earlier, it can be really disruptive and often embarrassing. And, and I find that digestive clients with digestive issues usually have tried a lot of things themselves and they can share with me uh, what they've done in the past and whether, you know, it's given them any relief or not. Um, and, and the other thing that is I really find um, really um, upsetting, not I'm upset on their behalf because I, I, I sort of realize that they're, they're very, they have very intricate uh, management systems that they've created to deal with these things, you know, about what time they get up, when they can leave the house, all of these kind of things mm -hmm. where they have to go because they know there's a toilet. And so it is really, really difficult. And I just really would urge everybody to not just put up with these things because, you know, they, they can be managed and resolved over a period of time in many cases. Um, so once I've got a big picture, then my next step would be to, um, explain the benefits of functional testing. And by that, I mean um, completing a digestive stool analysis because that can give a really clear picture of all sorts of areas. So things like what is your digestive function like? How well are you digesting proteins, fats, and carbohydrates? Are there any infections? You know, there could be bacterial infections. There could be viral infections. There could be uh, parasitic infections. Um, what is the status of their microbiome? So what bacteria are there? How many? Um, the key really with the microbiome is to have diversity and abundance. Um, so it's really interesting to get that snapshot of what's going on there and, and see if, um, if we need to address any of the, um, shortfalls or, or indeed if there's some things that there's too much of, um, how do we, uh, pair those back so we get them back into balance. Um, and also really important is looking at the inflammatory status as well. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, the inflammatory status is really a key marker of um, IBD. Um, so it's interesting to see at what levels inflation are in, inflammation is. So that, you know, this um, it's a really interesting test to do and it can give a lot of direction when it comes to a practitioner um, helping you decide what actions to take. And I find what is really helpful is it help rule it rules out specific issues and it also helps give direction where to start um, and, and what to do. But having said that, I do get some clients who prefer not to use tests. And, and if that's the case, then we will make a plan solely on what symptoms they're experiencing and my experience of working with clients in, in that sort of situation. Um, so that's a sort of a bit of an overview of what I do to sort of find out what's going on. And then the next step would be looking at a personalized food and supplement plan. And most um, functional medicine practitioners would use something called the 5R approach. So you don't have to do every step. It depends on really what the findings are for each individual person. But the, the five R's, the first one is removing things. So it might be removing triggering foods. It might be removing an infection. It might be removing stress um, or at least, um, you know, reducing stress. And then the next R is replacing. So that's really replacing things that will help you digest your food better. Um, and then the next one is re-inoculate. So that's where we're adding in bacteria to try and get that microbiome back into balance. Um, we'd also be looking at repairing. So repairing the gut lining. And then finally, the final R is rebalancing. So getting everything uh, in a balanced state and a supportive lifestyle to um to help so it's quite um, a detailed process it's a step-by-step -step process very systematic and it involves monitoring and adjusting um that over a period of weeks and months depending on what the individual uh, person requires um so it's a really it's a positive um approach i've had sort of quite significant results with many clients 
Um, and I know, you know, you follow a similar sort of approach, don't you, Karen? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, um... so is it something that you found that, um, you know, this IBS, this collection of, of, of symptoms is a, is a concern for um, your sort of athlete clients, Karen? Yes, absolutely. I think I think it's something that is prevalent in both athletes and non-athletes. Clearly, you're working more with the non-athletes, Alien. I'm working more with the with the athletes, and and yeah, I think it's across the board. You know, people do have these symptoms, um, and and it is thought that it can affect IBS gen in the general population um, can affect up to eleven percent of the global population. So. You know, it's, it sounds low, but it's when you think of the amount of people that are actually sort of dealing with these symptoms, it's actually quite high. But looking at runners specifically, um, yes, it could be linked to the running itself. So looking at the physical and the mechanical effects, like we've said, um, but also it could be linked to the client's um, diet and lifestyle, um, just the same as it would be with a with a with a non runner or a non athlete, Aileen. So, but but in clinic, I tend to work um, in a similar way to you. I think you've given a really comprehensive overview of um, how to work with a, a client with um, digestive symptoms. So I'd be working in a same in a similar way, taking a really detailed history of their of the client's sort of dietary ha- habits, but also their their lifestyle and potential environmental factors as well that could be contributing to the symptoms. But additionally, I would also be discussing the current training plan and what running goals they they have scheduled to determine if this is maybe. Um, a factor sort of thinking about the physiological and psychological stress that their potential goals have put on them, but also the training that they're having to put in place to reach these goals. So this is a really big area that I would be um, sort of discussing with them and what impact that is having on, um, on their digestive symptoms. And, um, and I do find, like you were saying, it's a step by step process. And I do find that it generally takes several months for, um, for a client to, to fully recover, maybe partially recover for some, but fully recover for others. Um, and it would include sort of the, the testing, like you've spoken about, Aileen, alongside the changes to their nutrition and lifestyle and potentially some, um, nutritional supplementation for a period of time if we felt that that was important. Yeah. So it sounds like we've, we follow similar sort of lines. Mm. And, um, I think the message is, you know, we can help. And we can minimize the symptoms. Um, it's very much a personalized approach for everybody. Um, so Karen, I know there's so many things that we could talk about regarding the sort of digestive conditions. Um, but I am conscious of time. And, but I thought just before we move on to nutrition and lifestyle factors, I just wondered if there's any, any female factors that uh, we should be considering. Yeah, I think again, sort of the female factors sort of regarding this topic is, is again looking at the prevalence of, of the conditions in women versus men. You know, earlier we were looking at the prevalence in, in athletes versus non-athletes, which that doesn't seem to be, well, we don't have the data, to be honest, um, linked to that. Um, but, but there is data. And again, this is looking at the general population that um that women um suffer from IBS so about 15% to 25% of women could suffer from IBS compared to between 5 and 20% of men um so mm. But, but what they don't know is what is the cause. Like you were saying earlier, it's a syndrome, Aileen. So, so although they know that there's more of a prevalence in women than men, they don't know what the cause is. Um, so IBD, looking at sort of IBD and, um, celiac disease. So like I was saying, they're all classed as autoimmune conditions and these conditions are known to be more prevalent in women, that, and I think that's well known, that's well documented, well studied. And in fact, in a, in a 
uh, a really recent paper I was reading, it stated that eight out of 10 patients presenting with um, autoimmune conditions were female. So that's really high. Um, and and it, it'll just, it's good to note here that we do speak about autoimmune conditions um, in episode four, 14 when we're discussing the immune system um, for runners. So, so, you know, people who want to, to know more, maybe just go back and um, and listen to that episode again. Um, regarding uh, this, the inflammatory bowel disease specifically, it, it is suggested that the menstrual cycle may be an influence um, in, in its course, in its development. Um, so, um, and, and then regarding celiac disease, Globally, the, pref the prevalence is 1%. Um, however, there is a 2 to 1% prevalence in women, again, compared to men. But for this, the reasons are still unknown. So, so quite, quite significant numbers like, um, comparing men to women to men. Yeah, it's quite um, quite shocking, actually, isn't it? That mm. so many people are suffering from IBS, particular. Mm, okay, so we, we've determined that there's really uh, there's several conditions that could impact on digestive symptoms experienced by a runner, um, and you know we just really would like to reinforce the importance of having these symptoms checked out by a medical uh, professional and. If all tests come back, either with or without a diagnosis, it's really worthwhile working with a nutritional professional to determine how diet and environmental and even lifestyle factors are influencing or triggering these symptoms. So, um, you know, think about food and how it can support digestion rather than thinking about always removing foods. <laughs> so yeah. that would be my, my advice there, definitely. Yeah, definitely, Aileen. I would, you know, support that that advice as well. So before we move on, Aileen, shall we just take a quick advert break um, before discussing the nutritional and lifestyle factors? Yeah, sure. So um, we're just um, doing our usual um, few minute pause uh, just for our our short advert break. So uh, many of you will know if you've been listening to us for a while that. Um, the podcast is supported by Runners Health Hub, and that's where um, Karen and I offer a range of services to help you be a fitter, faster, stronger runner. So if there's anything that you've been thinking about today to think that you need some help, just please um, drop us a line at hello at runnershealthhub.com. Um, we'll be happy to um, point you in the right direction and give you some professional support. Um, but what we wanted to um, talk to you about today was um, something new that Karen and I have been um, developing and designing. And it's really based on some research we've done ourselves around the nutrition and lifestyle challenges experienced by the women in our Facebook group. And uh, we asked them questions when they joined the group about what their challenges are and um, what we've realized. And that really informs us on, on the topics that we talk to you about on a week-to-week -week basis. Um, but one of the things that we realized was that although we get really good feedback from the episodes and they're really well received, one of the missing links for our followers is that they don't always know how to put it all into practice. So they listen to the advice and the information that we're sharing, but they'd really like some um, help and some direct input from us um, while they try to make changes. And that's led us to um, design our Healthy Woman, Healthy Runner method. And uh, what we're going to be doing over the next few months is um, offering some free training. Um, so if you're feeling frustrated with the health challenges that you're facing, um, particularly if you're a midlife runner, we'd really like to invite you to some free live Zoom host training. Um, so if you'd like to join us, it'll take an hour of your time. Um, just join us by um, registering for the free training. And what you need to do is check out our show notes, um, the episode notes at the, um, the end of this recording, and you'll see um, a link that you can click on and it'll take you to a registration place. Um, and if you can't see it, if you can't find the show notes, just again, drop us a line, uh, email us at hello at runnershealthhub.com or messages via Facebook and we'll send you the link. 
So it's our mission uh, to help you be a healthy woman, healthy runner for many years to come. So we, we'd love it if you joined us on that free training. Um, so uh, check us out and uh, we'd love to see you in the Zoom room. Great. Thanks very much, Aileen. Okay, so now let's um, move on and take a look at some of the nutritional approaches to supporting sort of digestive health to try and limit or prevent some of these um, running limiting uh, symptoms. So we initially spoke about um, several autoimmune conditions affecting the digestive sy system, which we know are driven by inflammation. So as nutritional therapists, our starting point would be about introducing a diet to help reduce or dampen down that inflammatory process. So, and again, we do discuss some specific anti-inflammatory nutrients in episode 14 when looking at the immune system in runners. So again, do listen to this for some additional uh, information. But um, today we're going to sort of look at some foods. So um, and and what we would we would do as nutritional therapists. Um, so initially we would look at removing the foods and beverages known to be inflammatory or irritate irritating to that gut lining and we're thinking of things here like caffeine and alcohol and we spoke about the the dairy and, and gluten linked to uh, sensitivities and tolerances earlier so that would be something that we would we would definitely think about um removing um potentially eggs soy products and peanuts as well because they are known to be um key foods that that a lot of people can be sensitive to or become intolerant to so um so just be mindful of that that it might not always be the 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 gluten or the um the the, the lactose that it could be something else and like alien was saying earlier it may be that that um it's because of the gut lining being so irritated that more and more foods are, are you, are, are you feel that you're becoming more and more sensitive just to, to certain foods? And these, the eggs, the soy products, the peanuts, um, are key triggers as well as, as, um, some other nuts. Um, so the tree nuts as well can be triggers. I know Brazil nuts can be, um, triggers of sensitivities, but true allergies as well. So just be mindful of that. And also shellfish and potentially other fish as well for some people. So some key potential inflammatory foods that that um, would be worth considering removing um, in, in certain cases. But again, important to work with a professional to, to, to find out what what the triggers are. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... Um really um, good advice, Karen. Um, and those are the, the ones that you've mentioned would be the most commonly known inflammatory foods, but people might also want to consider that there are some foods or food um, groups of foods that are uh, also considered to be inflammatory. So things like refined carbohydrates. Um, so that's like the white flowers and the white sugars, um, foods containing um, trans or hydrogenated fats, uh, processed meats and other processed foods and artificial sweeteners and additives. So, um, you know, I think if you worked with a nutritional therapist, they would again advise, they would look at what you're eating at the moment and then advise the first things that it would be advis advisable to either minimize or, or eliminate. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, as well as, you know, removing things, it's also good to add other foods into your food plan. So introducing lots of anti-inflammatory foods would help um, balance uh, the inflammation that's going on. Um, so that would be looking at a rainbow of fruit and vegetables, uh, eating oily fish, uh, having uh, things like walnuts, flax seeds and chia seeds, which are good sources of um, omega-3 fatty acids, having whole grains in your, in your food plan and limiting things like um, red meats, um, which um, it's not that you can't have them. It's just to make sure that you've got really good quality um, organic and grass-fed um, meat if possible and maybe just, um, you know, limiting the amount that you have each each week um, just to get this 
inflammatory loads imbalance. So it's all about the the load that's important. So balance, taking out some things, adding in some things would really help. So is there anything else, Karen, that you would add that maybe I've missed off there? I think your list is pretty comprehensive, Aileen. But but what I would just add there is that really the overall diet we'd be um, thinking about is leaning towards a more Mediterranean style um, way of eating um, with an increase in the plant-based food. So I think that would be um a, a nice easy way of of putting it forward um but but also would need to be mindful of fiber rich foods um and like i was saying earlier clearly they are, clearly they're very good for us and good for the digestive system but they could potentially be irritating to the to an already inflamed digestive system so it would be really about um introducing fiber slowly um to to and and just sort of um thinking about the types of fiber that are introduced first and and then so maybe thinking about the soluble fibers first and then the insoluble fibers sort of later on um so um and also the likes i'm speaking about vegetables but there's also the likes of of the lentils the beans and the pulses these two can for some people not all people but they can be quite um quite irritating so just to introduce those slowly as well um, but also with um, IBD and also um, celiac disease, um, that there potentially are many nutrient deficiencies present due to that reduced food intake, but also because of limited food absorption because of the damage to that to that gut lining. So, in some of the common deficiencies, um, certainly in IBD, um, include likes of vitamin B12, zinc magnesium, protein, um, but there are many more and it will be different for each individual. So again, another reason to be working with a professional who can really sort of um, help you just help you work out potentially what deficiencies are there, um, um, sort of help with testing and things like that. Um, and a lot of these um, sort of vitamins and minerals and different food groups that I've spoken about here. We do discuss them, um, under food sources in other episodes, including episode 21 when we speak about the bone health, but also episode 22 when we're speaking about fueling the, the aging runner. Um, because as we age, we have changes to the digestive system. So again, um, potentially a similar impact on some of these micronutrients. Um, so um, because we've done a lot of um, discussion around these micronutrients, I'm not going to go into any real depth here, Aileen, but it's just an outline of the ones that could be affected. Yeah, thanks, Karen. And the other thing that I'm thinking about when you were talking about nutrient deficiencies and how it can be difficult for people to eat certain foods if they've got digestive issues, uh, an angle that I sometimes work with people on is uh, what, how they're cooking their food and uh, other different ways they could eat their food so that they're, they're able to digest. So it might be, you know, um, using slow cooking or, um, you know, casseroles and baked or poached fruit and things mm. like that. So that can help them get the nutrients in. Um, but they're not, um, t overtaxing the digestive system and they're not irritating the digestive system. Yeah. So that's just another, uh, little thing to think about. Mm. Um, so I also thought it might be quite a good idea just to think about some of the lifestyle factors, uh, that might need to be considered and adjusted to help alleviate digestive symptoms. So you mentioned earlier, Karen, that, um, you would look at the client's, um, training load. Uh, because potentially, you know, as we know, if, if we've got a high level of training or we're training very intensively, that that is a stressor in itself and it could be a potential trigger. Um, so it's interesting to think that overtraining could lead to digestive symptoms or, or certainly exacerbate them. Um, and it's generally uh, accepted that um, also that underactivity or inactivity can also be a key uh, trigger of digestive system, um, digestive issues, Karen. So have you got any 
thoughts on that? Yeah, no, you're you're right, Alien. Um, you know, much of the literature discusses the impact of inactivity and its effects on the digestive system. However, yeah, overtraining can be detrimental too, as we sort of discussed in the beginning when recapping on the physical and the mechanical impacts of running on the, the digestive tract. So what I would say there is that it's about think it's thinking about adjusting the training um and i think that that would be an important lifestyle change that a, a runner would need to consider but it can be a really difficult conversation i've had to have many conversations with my clients um about sort of adapting the training to support their digestive health or other health aspects actually not not necessarily about the the digestive tract but other areas of the life and it is a really difficult um conversation to have with them because you know as we know it's really difficult to take running away from a runner so I think here it's really about mm. educating them on, on, um, what, how their training could be impacting on the symptoms that they're experiencing. So yeah, yeah, difficult one. Yeah. And I guess sometimes it's, it's a, it's a case of like stepping, it, making a step change on your plan, but it doesn't have to be forever. It's really to give your body an opportunity to heal and repair, isn't it? Yes. So, um, yeah, I imagine it's a tricky conversation. It is. And I, I think another lifestyle that might, another lifestyle factor, Karen, would be sleep. And mm. that might need addressing because it's found that it's been found that poor quality sleep, um, especially if it's a, a, something that's a long term and it's a habitual problem, that that can increase the risk of somebody developing IBS. And as we know, sleep is one of those underpinning uh, things regarding health. You know, we all need really good quality sleep. Um, so one of the theories that um, is spoken about is that individuals with IBS might have longer periods of rapid eye movement. And, and so that REM phase of sleep and REM sleep is associated with increased colonic motility, uh, which theoretically could predispose somebody to develop IBS symptoms. Um, so it's, it's an interesting hypothesis, isn't it, Karen? Uh, but I think, you know, every, anybody mm, who's got IBS, yes. they're willing to look at anything. And um, so it's an interesting theory, isn't it? It is. I think it's, it's really interesting and, and hopefully it's a theory which will, will be researched further. Um, but we know that sleep is important in, in so many ways, you know, for, for blood sugar balance, um, for hormone balance, um, also to, to s support stress reduction and, and for sort of a psychological and emotional well-being as well as the physical aspects of well-being and also you were speaking you were speaking earlier Aileen about the microbiota so the gut bacteria and again sleep has been shown to be really supportive of of helping with the balance of the microbiota um and 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 so and if any of these are out of balance, then it, it could potentially be a trigger for that inflammatory cascade. And again, that's putting an individual at increased risk of developing, um, IBS, um, or more concerning IBD or other autoimmune con um, conditions. So sleep is really, really important. Um, so, so, so I think sort of the, the moral of this story is get to bed yeah. and, and really aim to sort of get between seven to eight hours of sleep per night and just making sure that that seven or eight hours per night is consistent. It's just not one night at the weekend, but it's a consistent full night sleep, seven to eight hours. Yeah, that's a, a very good um, thought <laughs> to hold for everybody, Karen. Mm. Uh, so just to, to round mm. up our conversation today. So what we're saying in, in a nutshell is that the key considerations regarding diet and lifestyle to support digestive health are reduce the inflammatory foods and increase the anti-inflammatory foods to get that balance, um, address any nutrient deficiencies, ensure you get enough sleep, 
And finally, think about adapting your training if indeed it's a, a contributory factor. So just to round off, Karen, um, could you give us your key takeaways take for today's episode? Sure, Aileen. So my key takeaways from today are if you are experiencing any ongoing digestive symptoms, visit your GP to have them checked out. Definitely visit your GP if you're passing mucus or blood in your stools. Um, thinking about removing some trigger foods may have a significant positive effect on symptoms. And maybe think about keeping a, a food and symptoms diary to try and establish which, which foods may be causing the symptoms. Remember that some of the symptoms you're experiencing may be as a direct result of your running training, especially if you're a distance runner. Um, consider working with a nutritional professional for a personalized approach to the changes to your diet and lifestyle, depending on the symptoms you're experiencing. And I think this is a really key point um, because you can get a lot of general information out there, but your experiences are going to be unique. And remember, you don't need to live with digestive symptoms. And the earlier you acknowledge and act on them by seeking some support, the quicker you'll be back to peak running performance. Thanks, Karen. That's all a really important advice that you've given us today. And, and we really hope that um, everyone has got some helpful information on supporting digestion. And just finally, remember, don't let nutrition be the limiting factor in your running performance. Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of She Runs, Eats, Performs, brought to you by Runners Health Hub, helping female runners to be fitter, faster and stronger. We really hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, we'd be so grateful if you check us out on iTunes and leave a review. And once again, thanks for listening and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Bye for now. We'd like to introduce you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear for Women's Changing Bodies, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. We think they have everything a female runner needs. First of all, they are high compression to support your legs and bum. They have a deep waistband so they stay up and they don't move about when you run. There's a handy left pocket for your phone and a zip pocket on the waistband which is great for your cards or a key. They also have a hidden tracker pocket for storing a GPS tracking device, and this is a unique safety feature. All Amazing Jane designs, including tanks and tops, are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. Karen and I have been trialing wearing their range for a few months, and we can happily recommend them. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners' special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Thanks again to Amazing Jane Activewear for being our show sponsor and for sharing discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases. Mm -hmm.